there's this argument like what's talent and what's skill, right? Yeah. I, I think I did have a natural talent for it. Just I could pick things up by ear and just and play them. I got good very quickly, but I was never really serious about pursuing it at that point. So my mom came to me and it's like, do you want to go to Juilliard prep school? And I was like, nah, I'm doing other things on the weekend. <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. As always, I'm your host, Megan. I'm here by myself today. I don't have a co-host, but I am joined by Ann Vermont. And Ann is the head of legal at Smato. Uh, totally different background from most of us. She's, she doesn't handle personal injury claims. She's not, well, she is a lawyer, um, but she is a data privacy specialist. And what is that? <laughs> well, you're going to learn. I mean, it's totally outside, um, you know, our normal box of who we talk to, but that doesn't mean she has, you know, similar, you know, pain points and issues with um, compliance and, you know, indemnification, um, it, it, like so, so many similar things that weave into our daily lives. And I think you'll, you'll hear a lot of that. So with that, let's bring her, bring her in. Good afternoon. And welcome to the defense of arrest. I'm so happy to have you. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Megan. Pleasure to be here. You look well rested after a, a nice <laughs> long vacation across the globe. <laughs> So for our listeners, you, you just spent, I put two weeks in Japan, just about. Yes. Yeah. So if you, I mean, thank God it's partially a podcast. You can't see the circles under my eyes, but um, yeah, two weeks in Japan. Uh, I was on the Kumano Kodo trail, which is a hiking trail that goes across the key peninsula. It's an old pilgrimage route. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. It was beautiful scenery, beautiful weather. Um, and there was nobody there because Japan hasn't quite opened yet. They just kind of started oh, last week. So I uh, had the place to myself, which was really special. So do you do this solo or do you go with friends or a group of other people? Like, how do you do it? <laughs> so I, my wife and I were planning some kind of hiking trip, like a, an end-to-end thing. Because a couple of years ago, we did a trip to Patagonia where we did it all mm-hmm. sort of backpacking, which is not my thing. I did not know that at the time that I don't like sleeping on the ground, (laughs) that I can't possibly carry enough food for myself. Um, And so we were looking for something a little easier to do. So we we found this trip um, and it was with a group. There were eight of us because at that time you had to go with a guided tour in order to even get into the country. So that's, uh, that's how that started. We were looking at other things and I was like, you know what? I just, I've been to Japan a couple of times and I've been itching to go back. So yeah. good time. Cause that, that was my other question. Cause I mean, I've gone camping and whenever we've gone camping, it's like, I, like the car is packed to the, the brim full of stuff. So I can't even imagine traveling across the globe and then going on like a hiking you know, adventure. It's just like, I, I don't even know how, how I would manage it. <laughs> you don't. That's the point of this is that someone else manages it. They're, they tell you where to go, what to do. They carry your luggage. They figure out food. You just have to show up. Um, so that was, that was a real treat to not have to really plan anything. Yeah. That, that sounds good. That sounds like something I, I could handle. Like this, this mm-hmm. summer we did like the glamping thing. And I was like, I don't think I could ever go regular camping ever again. Like this was like oh, staying never. in a five-star <laughs> hotel. <laughs> Any hotel is better than a tent on like a yes. glacier. Uh, just no. <laughs> 
Yeah. And it was something like we embraced in, in COVID because we're like, well, we got to do something. Um, and I, you know, it was fine, but you definitely feel like you need like a really good shower afterwards. <laughs> and when we did the glamping this summer, I was like, I felt rested. It was so nice. Mm -hmm. Definitely a perk, especially in Japan, because it was, yeah. they were all hot springs towns. So at okay. the end of the day, you took a shower and then you went and sat hot springs. Oh. So that was part of the deal. That sounds really nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome back. We are not here to talk about your, your trip, although we probably could. There's really not many rules to this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably listeners out there like, tell us more. Can we get more details? <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll find me. <laughs> I'll direct them. <laughs> but, you know, we are here to talk about, about you and you have such an interesting background. Um, you know, I get a lot of lawyers on this podcast and everyone has you know, a different story of how they got to where they are. I have to say yours is one of the more interesting and different stories I, I've seen um, because, you know, for our listeners out there, you, you know, went to school for music and you were a, con a concert vi violinist and now you're a lawyer. So like, tell me a little bit about how, how that path went for you. Yes. How did that happen? Um, so it's it's interesting that uh, I, I find that a lot of people in in the legal field are, are coming from diverse backgrounds, especially people around my age who kind of hit like the 2008 financial crisis at a particular point in their career, decided to make a change. Um, and now also with COVID having happened, a lot of people have made a change too. But it's it's interesting how we're supposed to have figured out, supposed to have, in air quotes, figured out what we're supposed to do with our lives when we're 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Because that, I, very few people, I think, stick with that for the rest of their lives. So I wound up in music school because it was something that I was good at. And I was kind of lazy. And I was like, well, let's do this. So, I mean, of course, I loved it. I've been playing violin since I was seven or eight years old. And so I said, okay, we'll go to music school and I'll make a career out of this. Knowing absolutely nothing about the music industry, um, my family was maybe overly supportive and was like, sure, do whatever you want. Like not nobody <laughs> telling me that like, this is going to be really hard. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I went to Boston Conservatory. Uh, after that, I started freelancing. It was a good time to get into the industry. And so I played with a lot of... Um, theater productions, so playing in pit orchestras, playing in other professional orchestras, uh, first in Boston, and then I moved to New York City, um, originally from the New York City area. And did that for a while, traveled, went on tour, saw some really interesting places I never thought I'd go to, like Estonia, Iceland. It, yeah, it was, it was really great. I met so many incredible people. Um, I have friends from that period of my life I'm gonna have forever. Uh, but it is a very hard way to make a living. It's a real grind. Um, most people supplement their performing with teaching, which I also did. So I was mostly private students, but I was not going to pursue teaching, say, in like a classroom setting or something. So both my parents were public school teachers. I knew that was not going to work for me. And slowly I just started to kind of look around and be like, is this really going to work long term? for my life. Yeah. There's a lot about this that I love and it was 
I, I never really looked to leave the industry and I haven't, I'm, I'm still performing and I'm still playing. And I, yeah, you know, if you, you said to me like, okay, if you can't ever play music again, or you can't ever lawyer again, I think the choice would be pretty clear to me. But, um, so I was looking at options for going back to school because I, I had left after I got my bachelor's degree, did not go back to get a master's in music and thought this is, I mean, what am I going to do with a master's in music if I don't want to teach? Yeah. So um, no disrespect to my colleagues, but, but this is really how it started. I thought, what is the fastest degree that I could get? <laughs> <laughs> that's a professional degree. And that's going to give me some kind of skill set that I could use because yeah. I wasn't as far as uh, jobs that I could get to supplement my performing. It was just service industry and nobody else wanted to talk to me because it was like you, you know, what skills do you have? Despite whatever skills I may have had at that time. So I took the LSAT about like three months later, I started at uh, Pace uh, School of Law. I was going to focus on environmental law. I thought that was really interesting. I was in an accelerated program, so it took me two and a half years. And right from the beginning, I was like, oh, this, I actually really like this. <laughs> this is really interesting stuff. Like, I like reading. I'm, I like writing. I'm good at writing. So that kind of all went together. The whole law school process, the Socratic method thing, it was like, oh, you want me to get up in front of a bunch of people and do something? Okay, I've been doing that for 20 years already. Yeah. Um, and through that kind of process of a lot of the practical um, opportunities that they offered me at law school, externships, internships, et cetera, moved away from environmental law uh, more into uh, corporate. Mm-hmm is where I am now. And after that, it was, it, it honestly went pretty smoothly, uh, except for studying for the bar exam, which is unpleasant for everyone. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So that's how that transition kind of went from so there. One question I have about like your childhood though, when, when you like for, it, it, how did you get interested in the violin? Like, is it something that was just how, went through school or were your, did your parents play? Um, like how, how was that dynamic? It came out of nowhere. Like I just always wanted to play the violin. Um, my mom played the piano. So she tried to get me to do that. I'm terrible at playing the piano. Um, a hopeless student. So that didn't, I, the hands don't want to do something similar, but different at the same time. So that didn't work. So she's like, okay, we'll, you know, get you, um, a teacher. And if it's something that you want to pursue, we'll, we'll do it again, like super supportive, amazing parents. Yeah. Like, what do you want to do? We'll pursue it, but you know, be serious about it. If you're not going to be serious about it, we'll do something else. So that's kind of how that started. Not really any other, uh, professional musicians in the family. My, my grandfather was a beautiful singer. My great grandmother was actually an opera singer. Um, so yeah, so you have jeans, maybe Yeah, it's there. It's yeah. definitely there. <laughs> Um, it's not like my family who like no one can hold the tune and I mean I may have played the flute for however many years but I was terrible at it I just was able to blend in with the group you know no one knew if I was playing or not that's a good skill too I well that, that one I mastered I was very although my my daughter just started playing the flute this year in fourth grade like it's the part of the school thing like you choose to play an instrument I still can remember how to hold it don't know how to do a note or anything to save my life, but I, I do know how to hold it. <laughs> um, but I, that's a, kind of why I was interested in it, just because, you know, for her, I, I see like she's interested in playing, but she's not interested in practicing or a- any of the things that could possibly make her excel. So was it something that you were like, 
you had a natural, you know, talent for it and you were just really, you put a lot of effort into it or did it just come supernaturally to you? I would say, well, there's this argument, like what's talent and what's skill, right? Yeah. I, I think I did have a natural talent for it. Just I could pick things up by ear and just, and play them. Um, and the way that I was taught was, um, I was kind of learning everything all at once. So the reading the music, what does it sound like? What does it feel like all together? So I picked it up really quickly. I got good very quickly, but I was never really serious about pursuing it at that point. So my mom came to me and it's like, do you want to go to Juilliard prep school? And I was like, nah, I'm doing other things on the weekend. <laughs> You're a kid. You're be a kid. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like 12. I have no idea if that's a good idea or not. It sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. I want to hang um, out with like my friend Sally and go get ice cream. Like <laughs> Exactly. It was like, so that I, I kind of was you know, practicing every day because that's what was expected. And I understood that you're not really going to, you know, get anywhere if you don't practice. And my private teacher would have given me a very hard time, but I was kind of labeled as undisciplined, um, which I think is funny now because I'm an extremely disciplined person in a lot of ways. So like, well, you're never going to get very far because you just, you're not disciplined. And I'm like, well, I don't really know what that means, but ignore you know yeah um you know and fast forward though to and you and I had talked about this on the phone too you fast forward to law school and I mean a lot of people think like oh you know you have to have a certain like you have to major in like history or English or something but I think having that creative mindset combined like really like pulls your both sides of your brain together to make you like because you have to have a lot of analytical thinking to to play an instrument and to play it well um and then you have the creative side and then you know as you said you were like a really in, a good reader and everything like that was you had like the ultimate combo to make you like a perfect law student <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah in a lot of ways and it's interesting that you say that because what I hear from people who uh, when I tell them about my background, they're like, well, how do those two things work together? And I'm like, what do you mean? How do they work? They work they together. Well. Great. <laughs> it's because there's, you get to a point in, say you're, you're about to perform a piece of music, like, you know what it feels like to be prepared and you know what it feels like to not be prepared mm -hmm. and knowing how to fill in those gaps is so important. And it's the same with practicing law. Like if, if I'm about to discuss with somebody a very, complicated topic that they need to understand at a certain level, I need to be fully prepared. And if I'm not, that makes me very uncomfortable. And I have to go back and, and fix what that is and, and why don't I understand it or what is missing. And that's the problem solving piece for me um, in that regard. Uh, same with any kind of argumentation that I have to make. Like I'm prepared for my end and I'm prepared from your end too. Like yeah. I've got your argument down for sure. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you have to be, I mean, that is like, yeah, of course, I mean, I think the, for at least for me, the, the most important part of preparation is knowing how to respond to their argument. Like you can mm -hmm. say what you want to say to your blue in the face, but if you don't know how to respond and know what they're going to argue and have your plan, then you've almost failed, you know, or, or you're at least you're, you're behind now, now they're ahead. <laughs> mm -hmm. So how did you, and I, I think I know the answer, but from you just mentioning how your your parents were but um you know how did they take it when you were like okay well now I'm gonna pursue this 
Sounds like they were probably pretty supportive. <laughs> they were supportive, but also surprised because I, I didn't really discuss it with them. I, I kind of was going about it in a, like, let's just do this step-by-step, step. like look into schools, take the LSAT, see how I do, see what kind of offers I'm going to get. Because that was the other thing I thought, I'm not going to pay to go to law school. So I don't have the money. So someone's going to have to give me something. So yeah. what is this going to look like? Is it going to work out? at all? Or am I going to have to, you know, wait a year or whatever? So it, because everything happened very fast, I got my scores, I had already made an application to the school that I wanted to go to. And I was accepted. And they're like, come next week. And so I was at dinner at my parents' place. And I'm like, well, I'm going to start law school next week. And they were like, oh, okay. Um, that's kind of the extent of their surprise. Like, they're, they're not flappable people. But it was like, Oh, <laughs> do you need anything? Like wh what? Yeah, and and went from there. Um, and I think what was really helpful to hear from them as well, um, them knowing kind of what struggles I was going with as a freelance musician. They said, you know, if you don't like this, you don't have to do it. Like you can stop. Which may have been the first time they ever encouraged me to like maybe not pursue something fully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess that pressure, like, even though it was it, all well-intended pressure, it was still pressure like, oh, I need to, I need, to, like, from a young age, if I need to do this, I need to do it fully. And then it's mm -hmm. hard to get around it at some point. You're like, wait, like, I can change my mind now. Like, I, I, I did pursue it fully. <laughs> it's fall, but it, it's not making my bank account full. So I need a plan B now. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. And uh, there, it's also there's a big focus in my family on, on the value of education. So it was like, well, of course, yeah, go back to school, do whatever you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so take me through, through then you, you go through law school and you get into corporate. So, you know, tell us now where you are now um, and how you got to where, where you are. Cause that is a bob and weave path for everyone as well. <laughs> at least yes. for me. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. When I look at my resume, it gives me anxiety sometimes. I'm like, oh, is anyone going to understand this? <laughs> it's just good um, things so, to talk about. It just gives people questions to ask you. <laughs> well, yeah, which is great. Because I think if you're looking for someone who has a very um, sort of straight trajectory, then you, I'm not going to fit in there anyway. <laughs> so good. But um, right now, I'm the head of legal at Smato. Uh, Smato is an ad exchange um, ad serving platform. So what that means is it's a, it, we have a service and a platform that connects digital advertisers and digital uh, advertising properties. So say you're on a website, an ad pops up, how does it get there? Well, we're part of that process of making sure that ad gets from the advertiser to the publisher so that you can see it. Um, and that entails a lot of privacy considerations. Just for everyone who's listening, no, we do not sell your data. We're not doing anything <laughs> nefarious with it. Please check our privacy policy. I just looked at it. It looks great. Um, and um, we're part of a larger um, media organization called Verve Group, which does a lot of similar things. Also, some support functions, functionalities for, um, for advertisers and for publishers as well. So um, being in-house, I do everything, which is really exciting because there's always something to do. There's always something new to learn. Uh, it never gets boring. Um, it can get complicated, but it never gets boring. Uh, so I've been here for uh, uh, over a year and a half, I think. 
Um, and I have a wonderful team. Just want to shout out to them because I was just on vacation and they handled everything oh, spectacularly great. and nobody texted me or called me. And it was great. That is a good team. Yeah. <laughs> and good, but a good example for you as the head of the team to be like, I am taking off and I trust you to handle this. Yeah. And so I came back and I'm like, do they need me? Um, because seems like everything's fine. Uh, but then at the same time, yeah, I thought, okay, well, we're, we must be doing pretty well because there were quite a, a couple of complicated things that went on while I was out. <laughs> um, so how did I get to where I am now? Definitely an interesting path. So prior to this position, uh, I was in, uh, in-house at uh, People Connect, which is a IT company. They own some media properties. They're based in Seattle. I wasn't there for very long. Um, my wife was uh, out in Seattle working for Amazon and then she got transferred back to New York. So we, back to New York, we went. Uh, and in that period, COVID happened. So I was kind of looking for the next opportunity for a while, which was kind of a terrible time to be looking for a job, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but it took that time to so get much my privacy. During that time. Oh, it was, it was, it was probably the hardest period of my life. I think it just so much that I thought was going to happen because I was like coming back to New York and I had this plan and my life was going to be like this. None of that happened. Um, everything turned out to be different and everything turned out to be better than I expected. So that's a lesson in sort of keeping a, an open mind to what could potentially happen. Um, but yeah, I took that time to do my privacy certification. So I'm certified information privacy professional for the US and for the EU, which is super helpful for the work I'm doing now and probably for any work I will do in the future as privacy becomes more and more a uh, cornerstone of general practice. During that time though, that you like came back to New York and you were kind of in between things like, did you have an idea of what you wanted or were you kind of like floundering a little bit being like, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Hundred <laughs> percent floundering, um, <laughs> full flounder. I I took some time off. I was taking some auditions because I didn't know if I really wanted to continue to practice law. Actually, I hadn't had great experiences up to that point. It was either so. I was in private practice prior to going um, in house, and that was not for me. Um, it was a small firm. It, there was not really room for me to um, expand my practice or to grow in any way. It was not the best working environment for me. And then I was in Seattle, uh, you know, as a New Yorker in Seattle, first off, the culture shock was like enormous. I'm more comfortable in other countries. And, you know, the job was, was good, but it was kind of a similar, like, you know, we're just going to do this one thing and there's not going to be like a lot of room for expansion. So I thought maybe this isn't working out for me. Um, so thank God I didn't win any of those auditions because all of those orchestras folded during COVID. Oh, yeah. Thankfully they're, yeah. they're back um, in, in some capacity now. Um, so it was, it was really difficult and I didn't know whether there was such a thing as a, a legal position for me that was going to work that was going to keep me interested and provide me a path forward something sustainable that i could do for my career uh, but i i did it anyway <laughs> i started looking at jobs and just i i really landed in a in a good spot i knew right away after i was interviewing with them that this was just a, a real 
a real good opportunity for me and, and it has been. Um, and not to like dwell on that, that, that time, but I just remember it, like the uncertainty for myself during that time. And then you're like stuck in the home so, and, yeah. and you're in New York city where it was like, I, I can't even, you're stuck in like a, probably a, a one or two bedroom apartment mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, y- your wife is working and you're uh, like, I'm sure you're, you're in mental the same state, room. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure your mental state was like, Oh yeah. What am I going to do with myself? <laughs> and like, it just takes a toll on you. And it, I mean, it took a toll on everyone with everything that was going on, but having that uncertainty, yeah, I'm sure it was just really difficult. It, it was. And eventually we were rescued. So I, we wound up going to live with my parents, which is another challenge, you know, <laughs> when you're in your late thirties and you're living with your parents <laughs> and during a pandemic when nobody can leave the house and there were all sorts of other things going on. And it just transported me immediately back to being a teenager, which I'm sure was not pleasant for anyone. And I, I apologize publicly for that. <laughs> At least you're owning it now. <laughs> it's just, it was, it was rough. Uh, we got through it. Um, but yeah, I, it was in, in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have happened to me that period, because it just took everything away except for the really important things. And I had to focus on, okay, I have my health and I have my family and, you know, I, I do have these skills that I can leverage in some way to support myself. And so that was really important. I think it, it, it just got rid of a lot of unnecessary things so that we're starting with, okay, what, what do we need? And then what do we need going forward? And then what, and then what do we want? Let's just stick with the basics. Yeah. So I, I think you, you mentioned it briefly, but so how did you, how did you arise at this opportunity that you're in now? So I was looking for jobs in tech um, because I had this privacy background and I really wanted to, to, to expand that practice. I had been working in privacy, I want to say sort of unofficially because I didn't have these certifications, not that it necessarily, it's great if you do, if you don't, you work in the, in the industry, fine. Um, so because I think that's, that's where we're going as far as the majority of corporate work. So as far as advertising, I did have some experience with that from my previous position because they were on the uh, so-called publisher side where they had inventory that they wanted to fill with advertisements in order to monetize. So starting with that, um, I began a conversation with this company. Uh, they were looking for senior legal counsel at that point to handle that as well as all of the other good things um, that come along with in-house work. Uh, mostly, interestingly, employment issues, um, and that overlaps with privacy as well. So your employment privacy policies, that gets complicated because um, Smato has offices all over the place. So there is, you know, an applicant policy for Singapore, and there's an employee policy for Germany, and there's a different one for China, but nobody really knows what that one means. And so there's a lot going, (laughs) there's a lot to handle at once. Um, and so when I started, it was myself, um, a legal counsel who had been there for five years, but was slightly more junior than me. And uh, we were working closely with the COO uh, of the company. Um, shortly thereafter, the company was bought by the larger Verve Group, 
And so there was a period of time where I thought, hmm, I've been through one of these before and I'm not sure what's going to happen. But uh, in the end, it worked out well. Um, they put me in as the head of legal um, where I have been doing everything uh, ever since. Again, I have a great team working under me. It's also a larger legal team, uh, the Verve Group and their parent company that I work with very closely. Um, and so it's kind of a nice hybrid of having autonomy, but also having a support system yeah. as well. Yeah, it, that is something that I've, I've come up with a few people I've had on the podcast who kind of started out as a smaller company or, or, or more of like a, you know, a, a startup and then get a purchase happens. They're like, it's almost, there is that level of fear when it first mm-hmm. happens. Like, is my job safe? You know, is my company safe? Am I going to, am I going to be expendable? And then the end results, what I've heard a lot is, well, now I, I work at a startup, but I have a, like a large financial backing. So mm-hmm. it makes things a little bit more comfortable as to making decisions and especially decisions on spending. Um, it's not as tight as it may have been at a startup. Did you yeah, and that? Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because so Smano has been around for 20 years and the company that bought it has been around for two so there there was kind of this like opposite time but still both were very well established so the what was interesting is we almost had too many resources so there were some pain points and growing pains there to kind of decide are there redundancies and what are we going to do about that and and that's something you'd see more in a merger this is was not a traditional merger because smato is still operating as an independent company but you can't have redundancies. That's that's not going to work on yeah. on the PNL. So um, that was that was difficult in some ways, but we're growing very rapidly, which is also encouraging. Um, and again, globally, so that's a fun thing for me too because I went from music industry. Everybody's from all over the place. Now I'm in the music industry, and everyone's from all over the place, and that's I like that a lot. Yeah. And you love to travel. So hopefully that, that is part yeah. of your role. You get to, you know, <laughs> go on business travel to some of these wonderful places. <laughs> well, yeah. I, it's usually they don't want to see the lawyers. It's usually that they want to see the business development and whatever. I think there, we did have sort of a, um, an offsite um, project last year, but it was in New York City. So I was like, well, okay. <laughs> not Berlin, not Singapore. Uh, but we'll see what the future holds. So, you know, how has it been, or how was it coming in though? And you're coming in at a pretty high position, um, but you're new coming in and now you have this team and you have to manage, you know, different personalities and work, you know, and working styles still in the pandemic too. So I don't know if you're in an office or at home, but you know, how is that experience for you? Trying to manage a team remotely, you know, it's it's difficult. Yeah, it would be remote kind of anyway. So I have one team member who is in Germany, another who is in New York. Um, I work from home on Long Island. We're kind of all negotiating this like hybrid workplace kind of situation. Um, We always like from the beginning had standing meetings, checkup kind of things. We, there's more than enough time to, handle everything that needs to be handled and also have kind of this casual conversation about whatever that is missing when you're working from home, yeah. you don't have the social interaction. But when I started, I was, we were all kind of on the same level. So 
and I still feel that like titles are not important to me. Obviously, they are to to the outside world, but we're it's a collaborative team as far as reporting. Who makes decisions? It's it's very clear, kind of who has what authority to do what. So for my team, that's been fairly, I hope, easy to manage. I'd hope they say the same thing because we're in constant contact. And if there's any any question about anything, we're always communicating. Um, with the larger team, um, that was interesting because this is the first time that the larger group had kind of acquired a company that had its own legal team. Yeah. So they're like, well, what do we do with you guys? Like, well, it's still an independent business. I'm still going to run it. If you need something, um, tell me what you need. And, and likewise, so now we have multiple people in the larger organization who can work on data privacy, or if there's something having to do with mergers and acquisitions, we have specialists for that now. And it's not just, you know, two of us trying to figure out what to do. Um, so I, I actually, I prefer working from home. I, I didn't realize that working in an office was giving me the level of stress and anxiety that it was, which, yeah, which is, been a good thing to realize because I think that was kind of why I was so disenchanted with practicing uh, going into the pandemic and being like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, just, I think people work in, in different ways and it doesn't always look like a person sitting in front of a computer. Like I do my best thinking when I'm doing something else. So I can barely sit still anymore. If I was in an office, I'd be like wandering around the room, you know, looking in the refrigerator, just generally looking like I'm not doing any work, but I am, I'm thinking about something. Yeah, I feel that so much because I am, I am a fidgeter. I don't sit well, like I don't sit still very well, um, but I love working from home for that same reason. Like there's no one around judging me that I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. pacing around my house or whatever is because it's the same thing. I, I just, that's where I think. Like, I don't think very well just like sitting here in front of my computer being like, okay, now you need to think. Like, I just, <laughs> I need to get away from the computer so I don't have the distractions of the emails. Um, I, in fact, one thing I've started to do recently, I move out of my office if I need to like concentrate. I just go to a different room so my, my computer is away from me so I can just mm -hmm. concentrate on what I need to do. Um, I like it, but I mean, on the flip side, like my husband, he works from home on Fridays and he just complains, like he does, he hates working from home. He's like, I don't know how you do this. Like, he's like, I like to, he likes to be in the office with all the other people. I was like, I, mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I love people, but I can call them. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think another good thing about, about the kind of the meetings, the team meetings via Zoom or whatever you're doing with, you know, you got to get together and talk about a difficult topic is that when I get off the computer, I can make whatever face I want yeah. about the conversation that just happened. Or I can be upset about the stupid thing that somebody said and no one has to witness that. Yeah. Which is really great for them because I think that that probably has not contributed to a workplace success for me in the past. <laughs> of like getting off a phone call and being like, what the F is this idiot? And it's like my client, you know? <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. So, um, you know, and one thing that you had mentioned, though, that I, I see kind of a parallel between your, you know, your, your life and music to, to now, because you're talking about how I know every day is different, you're juggling a lot of things. And, you know, I feel like when you were in 
fully immersed in your musical life, you probably, you were juggling a lot of things between, you know, freelancing, you know, teaching every, everything that you're doing. And, and now each day, you know, who knows what you're going to get thrown your way and you have to juggle so many things. Have, have you seen that parallel in your own mind? <laughs> yes. It's like, it's different genres, right? Different genres of, of legal practice, different genres of music. So it's, what I, I just try to approach every day, like just ready, not anticipating anything, but we're just ready. Um, and definitely something I'm learning as I mature in both fields is that 15 minute rule, like something comes in and it's like, it's an emergency. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not, I'm going to wait 15 minutes before I decide whether it's an emergency, because mm-hmm. if I just jump on this right now, chances are I'm going to trip over something and it's going to be a mess and I'm going to screw it up or miss something. So going slowly and kind of handling things in a very methodical way is really important now. And it doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. Like, I want to solve it now. I want to solve your problem and your problem will be over in five minutes and everyone will be amazed. And that doesn't always work. (laughs) I I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Magic wand, problem solved. Yeah, with everything in life. Like, like even like with my kids, if they have an issue with their friends, I'm like, I just want to fix it for you. And so we can move on and everyone yeah. can be happy. <laughs> yeah, and, and people find that really annoying. They're like, you're not listening to me. I was like, no, no, but I'm solving your problem. Which, yeah, that's a different, yeah. that's a psychology podcast. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, we need we need a profession, another professional on to, to mm-hmm. unpack that for us. So, you know, I, I, on this podcast, so we do, we talk a lot about, um, pain points. And so what are some like, and, and you're outside of like my typical industry, like, you know, I work a lot in claims. So I, I see, you know, personal injury claims or property claims. And so you're, so w- my pain points are very different from, from what yours may be. So I, I'm interested, I'm sure my listeners are interested, like, what are your typical, like, what are your pain points on the day to day? What do you see that is like, you know, makes you want to like, bang your head against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So in, in the programmatic advertising industry, things are constantly changing. So what the standards are, say, for collecting a consent from an end user to place an advertisement on their device is constantly changing. It's different everywhere. It's becoming even more diversified. So, for example, in the EU, you have the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, uh, been around since 2018, pretty restrictive for what you can do with, um, with personal data or end user data, data subject data, however you want to define it. Um, in the US, we've had California with kind of a similar but different rule protecting consumers which is now changing for next year. Uh, we have new uh, laws coming out in Virginia, Colorado, Utah, and Connecticut also next year, all of which are similar but different. So just in that one space, we have an issue because the consent that's passed from the end user to the publisher, then goes to us, then goes to the advertiser, basically says, yes, you can do X with this data. And if we don't have that, we can't do anything with it. Nobody makes any money. Mm -hmm. Because that's constantly changing, I have to stay on top of that. I have to now inform uh, C-level, which they don't want to hear that there's any problems, but they they need to be told anyway. Uh, Engineering may need to do a build out to to make a change and not even made. They they have to stay up to date with this. And, And usually we don't have a lot of 
industry guidance on that. So for example, like um, major industry players or groups will come up with certain guidelines that maybe we can follow or whatever. So how do we want to go about doing these types of things? Because there's a way to handle it that's very letter of the law, but we're also a business. So there needs to be a a risk assessment of everything that we do to say, okay, what we want to do the right thing by the law, com comply with the spirit and letter of the law. But if that means like we basically can't route any data anywhere, then we can't be in business. So how do we, yeah. how do we negotiate this? Um, and it's, they're very, very nitpicky things. So for me, that's, that's what makes me want to be like, like really again, like, why are we, you had a law, why have you amended it three times? Like, leave it alone. Um, and also because nobody wants to hear this, this news, but what is helpful for me is to look at it from a solutions perspective. So if you have all of these different things, what are the commonalities? If you want to have a common one size fits all approach, uh, or best practices approach, how do you do that? If you want to do it instance by instance, how do you do that? And working with people who can get me the data to show what is actually on paper, say the most beneficial um, from a business perspective, and then I can give my opinion on what's most beneficial from a legal perspective. And there's so many different teams involved in these two. So it's difficult to get everybody together on the same page. Everyone has different opinions about how it should be done. Uh, but that's also, yeah, mostly what happens. That's mostly what I'm doing. Say, hey guys, you know, this is coming down the line. We have to address this in some fashion. Yeah, but then it's like just managing a lot of, like you're kind of the bearer of bad news because there's, you know, you've been doing something one way and now you're saying, okay, well, this is coming. We're going to need to pivot a little bit here. And then by you saying that probably makes people unhappy. <laughs> you know, like the C-suite might be unhappy. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a financial thing. It's a business compliance thing. And then they're like, oh man, legal. Every time legal shows up, they tell us we have to do something different. <laughs> I, I try to deliver the news nicely. Um, it, it's just more work for people. And I understand yeah. that it's more work for me too. And that's just one example of kind of the many different pieces that are constantly changing. Um, and that's a reflection of uh, consumer attitudes towards privacy, which is totally understandable yeah. Um, yeah. because we don't have this overarching data protection, data privacy legislation in this country. We may have at some point. Um, yeah. Somebody asked me to speculate on whether I thought that that would happen in our lifetime. <laughs> and I, I refrained from comment. So, yeah. So, but, do you, I, that was my question though, because I mean, I hear, I hear it a lot too with like Amer like with regu regulation of marijuana too, that having the state by mm -hmm. state rules is, or laws is very different or is very difficult to, to manage um, compared to like say Canada that has, you know, a country, countrywide regulation. So, you know, I imagine having the state by everything, privacy laws different state by state makes mm -hmm. your job harder. I mean, let's take mm -hmm. the other countries out of it. Um, so would, you know, would that be preferable to have a, a, have it be regulated on a national level? Yes, it, it would be great. Uh, I think that the time for that has probably passed. Um, when California came out with the consumer, uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, 
that was the time for the federal government to step in and be like, okay, we see where this is going. We're just going to adopt this as kind of convoluted and screwed up as it was that law at the time. We're going to adopt this on a federal level uh, or at least, you know, minimum standards for, for all 50 states. But I don't think there was any political interest in that. I still don't think there's really any political interest in that. So it's probably going to wind up I think in court when we have some sort of um, interstate conflict between yeah. two states, uh, because the the privacy laws are we're dealing with with the digital age. Like there is no such thing as as state boundaries when it comes to these right. things. So exactly. it's eventually it, we're going to have to pick probably the most restrictive. That's well, what I would advise: pick the most restrictive state law and apply that across the board. So. That's yeah, where we're headed, probably. Like I, so I think I think about it in the most simplest form. Like, say, like I'm downloading an app, and you know, you you accept whatever privacy standards. I, I'm physically located in New Jersey. Now, mm-hmm. if I've accepted that app and those privacy standards in New Jersey, but then say I fly to California, and like, how do, does that impact it? Like, and I use that app, and like my then my information gets exchanged or whatever information I'm sh- I agreed to share mm-hmm. gets exchanged in California and say it has more, more stringent standards. I, I don't know if it's more stringent or not, but then like to me that, yeah, that seems like a legal cluster. I mean, it's, it's an, probably a law school exam problem. <laughs> you know, It is. Yeah. Moot court hundred <laughs> um, percent because each law is going to define um, its boundaries differently. So is it based on whether you're a citizen or whether you're present? physically in the state and they're not all the same (laughs) so yeah how do we how do we go about doing this so i I think um probably industry leaders are going to step in and say okay here is and it's already happening to some extent here here's the the one size fits all approach that is going to work for everything but then you're kind of capturing some things in that net that you wouldn't if you did it specifically state by state so then how much revenue are you losing if you do that? So what I'm curious about, like on like a very, let's say elementary school level, let's take this down to, like what, are, like what are kind of the differences in, you know, what's allowed in like say California versus another state? Like, like if we can dumb it down to, if possible, down to like an elementary school level. Mm-hmm. So currently there's, probably more similarities than there are differences. Okay. What the, the focus, uh, from my perspective, what's important is that the, um, the end user needs to opt out of, say, I do not want you to mm-hmm. sell my data, share my data, prof- use it for um, targeted advertising purposes, uh, use it for profiling purposes. So meaning that your data gets put into uh, a profile uh, with some other people in order to also target advertising, send behavioral advertising. So the list of things that the consumer is now able to opt out of is longer because previously um, under CCPA, it was just for sale, um, which was defined in a number of ways and has been redefined and refined and et cetera in new regulations. But now it, you know, there's more specific choices. So kind of like if you are visiting um, a website that's hosted in the EU and you get the cookie consent banner, 
It's going to be something like that. Most people ignore it and they're like, I don't know what the, like, I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter. You're still going to go to the website. They can't prevent you from going to the website if you don't consent to, to all of these things. It's giving consumers more choice as to what happens to their data. There's an upside and a downside to that to the, for the consumer. Um, if you like receiving targeted advertising, you should pay attention to those choices and they will send you the type of genes that you consistently buy. Um, but we're also not talking about, um, I should also mention <clears throat> that um, under the Virginia law that's, that's gonna be effective January 1st, you can also opt out of uh, sensitive data. So now we have different categories of data. So things like your IP address or geolocation, is that sensitive? I mean, rough geolocation, not your precise geolocation. That's not really considered sensitive. What would be considered sensitive? Bank account information, um, your like full name, social security, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so you can opt out of sale of that. But what you have on your device, what's being sent is the your device ID, your rough geolocation, if you consent to that, because you can obviously adjust your privacy settings. Um, and uh, information about the, the app that you're using. It, it's not, it can be put together to identify you as an individual, but it's not, you know, your biometric information. Yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a very different thing. So there's, there's just not a lot of understanding, I think, on the consumer side of how that happens. And is it really an intrusion of your privacy to receive a targeted advertisement? Because yeah. even if you were sent a, a contextual ad, so if you're looking at a website um, and it's all, you know, skiing equipment, like they're going to record, okay, you're looking at skiing equipment, you're going to be put into a category of people who may like to ski, which is a certain demographic, age, age group, mm -hmm. um, income level, and you're going to get an ad based on that, which based on how the algorithms, algorithms work is probably going to be pretty accurate. You're like, oh, they're tracking me. Like, not necessarily. Go to your privacy settings. You don't want to be tracked. Turn it off. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, I mean, it always comes up for me, like when you download a new app and it's, you have that pop-up, like, do you want this app to track the other apps in your phone? Like, I'm like, hmm, no, yeah. I don't. <laughs> Cause I got my banking Please, app. I, mean, I got yes, all these other things out it. here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't, we don't, you don't need to know everything else I'm doing. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I, I, I see the plus to it too. Like that, you know, sometimes, I mean, Sometimes it's good to be like, oh, well, like they, this knows exactly what I like I'm interested in or things that, you know, might fit my, my lifestyle or, you know, things I might want to purchase or, you know, things I may want to consume. Um, but I also do see the fear factor to it too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, am I really just a private individual? Like, are there, is, it, is my, my phone knows everything, my computer knows everything and everywhere I'm going and telling other people because I told them they could. Anyway, yeah, I, and I do think there's a general, maybe like not misunderstanding, but a lot of the general public might not know or understand what they're clicking when they're clicking or, or when they're approving the cookies. I, like, you know, like I know my mother certainly doesn't understand, you know, she just wants to go to whatever website she's going to and will click whatever it is just to get her there. So, you know, is there a need to like, offer more like education to the general public of what, what it actually means when you're, you know, opting out or opting in. Yes. Cause even when I discuss opt in and opt out with 
other professionals, it's like, wait, now what is opt-in versus opt-out? Because it's confusing. Uh, part of good data governance is transparency. And that is how you communicate what you are doing with the data to your uh, customers. Yeah. And so there's an art to that. Um, where the position that Smato is in is kind of in the middle. So we can say, this is what we do with the data that we receive, but we're not receiving it from you, the end user directly. We're receiving it via several intermediaries. So we are in a position to say to those partners, in our contractual terms, you are responsible for providing notice to the end user. And this is what you must include. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a, a non-negotiable thing. Like I get red lines back on that. It's like, no, 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 that's your job. It's not my job to tell them that you are doing this. They don't know who we are. And how that works on the device level is really interesting, particularly when it comes to connected TV, because that's kind of like mm-hmm. not as developed in some ways for, you know, how do you get consent from them? How how does that work? Have you ever seen a privacy notice on your television? Like, no, <laughs> you haven't. Uh, so it, it's an industry-wide effort, I think, to, to educate the consumer so that they understand what is happening to the data, what their choices are, what their options are, and what that means to them. Um, yeah. Ultimately, there's kind of like a, a camp in the industry that's like, well, if we don't have advertising, we don't have a free internet which is an extreme view of one side of, and the other is a free for all. But yeah, it's, there's still, I don't know that there is a real direction that we're moving in here because so much is changing and the industry may be forced to do certain things that are particularly consumer friendly, um, and there's some pretty dire uh, estimates of what that might cost, but we're also looking at an extremely large amount of money that the industry is making anyway. So, you know, 10 billion here or there is probably not (laughs) the end of the world. Do you ever sit back and think though, like how different advertising is, advertising marketing is now compared to what it was like when we were kids? you know, think about it. Mm -hmm. Like we were force fed, like whatever, you know, TV ad was on that, that was your advertising or whatever ads were in the the physical paper or the magazine. Um, And like, it was customized to some extent, you know, like you pick up a teen magazine, there were certain types of ads in there, but now it is so unbelievably personally customized. When you Mm -hmm. think about it, like what has happened in really not that long of a time, it's mind blowing to me. Yeah, it even in the amount of time that I've been in the industry, I've seen a huge change. So when I started working with some advertising, we were still like filling out these little like paper insertion orders for this particular ad at this particular time at this, but and that just doesn't happen. It happens automatically. It's like 0.2 seconds that ad gets delivered to you. Yeah, based on whatever information they decide is associated with you. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's grown really fast, the, the digital advertising in the last, you know, five years. And I think maybe that growth has outpaced what is 
be going to be the average over time because we're getting this pushback now because people want to have control over their data, which is totally understandable. Yeah. And I, I do think there's probably a general fear of what data is being released. You know, I think it, like the sensitive data, I think people get nervous that the sensitive data it could be getting released too. And like, I, and I think that's mm-hmm. the knee jerk reaction. You know, look at my search history. I don't care. I just don't want you to have my bank account, my social, you know, or and my address. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and thankfully there are more specific privacy regulations for those industries. So, you know, healthcare industry, finance industry, but there's not the system of accountability and oversight that say they have in Europe for things like that. So when things go wrong and you get that like card in the mail, that's like your data has been compromised along with 8 million other people. (laughs) Uh, So, so then, then what, then you're, you're kind of left without recourse in some situations to do anything about it yourself and you're relying on like the FTC to come in and, and slap wrists. Yeah. Have, and have you in your experience like been in when you have your your end users like you, when you tell them like you need to have the, you know this is what you need to have in your consent that's you know our rule like this is what needs to happen um, and they don't have, have you been seeing like some lawsuits on your end when you have a breach of contract like that? So thankfully, no. Um, That was not the answer. Yeah. (laughs) No, well, it's, we really, we're in a nice position as an intermediary because we can get indemnification from both sides. So, and, and pass that through as, as well, if something goes wrong, but it's, there are some instances where if you even touch this kind of compromised data, it's a problem for you too. So um, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, for example, anyone involved in that chain, whether they know about it or not, is going to get dinged with fines if they're targeting advertising to um, a child under 13 and they don't have consent. For, for other things, the regulator will come in and generally do an investigation of everybody involved in the chain, but it's primarily the, um, the person who has contact with the end user. So the publisher, the, in, in that instance, will be the one who's primarily responsible. Um, there have been some instances where we're kind of involved in this larger investigation. It's like, we just are passing what they sent us. They sent us everything. It was right. We will show you the bid request. We'll show you everything. Uh, and yeah. in those instances, there's not really anything to worry about, but does make you nervous. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, because it's just so it's so expensive too. I just I I and there's there's a lot of dollars and numbers of people involved. So that's that would make me a little nervous. But I'm I'm so glad yeah, that yeah. with the indemnification agreements, you know, you you're covered on both sides. But <laughs> yes, and and this is why we get questions about like a cap on indemnification. I'm like, nope. <laughs> no, we cannot. We can cap liability, but I'm not capping indemnification. Absolutely no. I'll give you a long list of reasons why. Um, well, we are just about out of time, but I didn't want to let you off without, I, I had two questions that I'm like, I can't let Anne go without, ask, without <laughs> asking her these questions. Um, one being, you know, since you've traveled so, so widely, you know, do you, and I know you, you just were in Japan. I know you told me that's one of your favorite places. So other than Japan, what, what is one of the favorite places that you've, you've visited in your time? Oh, boy. Mm. They're all like different and wonderful in, <laughs> in their own way. I, I really loved Brazil. 
I was in Rio for an orchestra tour for about maybe a week and a half. This was a long time ago, but I just, it was just such a fascinating place. Um, the way that like nature is cut, like the jungle is still is coming in still like there's civilization there, but the jungle's taking over. Uh, the beach was beautiful. Every, you know, just the energy there was, was really incredible. Yeah. And I, what I hear that the people are amazing. Like it's just very vibrant oh, yeah. and like fun and, you know, just a lot of, a lot of culture going on too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've never been, my parents, my parents went very long, long time ago and maybe I'll get there someday. <laughs> definitely recommend it um and and one final final question i ask pretty much anyone who gets on the show unless i somehow forget um but you know knowing where you've been and gone through your your career and your the turns that you've taken um what advice would you give your younger self Mm, slow down (laughs) slow down (laughs) calm down (laughs) um I've, i've been very lucky that i have not really stepped in it bad because I've rushed through things, but I've scared myself enough to have learned, I think at this point that just take a little more time and a little more care in everything that you're doing. And it'll, it'll make such an exponential difference in the end product. That means a lot coming from you though, because you, you do come across very intentional and calculated and, and like, You've done things that are like require a lot of precision and the fact that you say you still need to slow down. I think that's really good advice. <laughs> yeah. I, I've learned this recently also driving, like, cause I was living in the city for so long. Like I wasn't driving and now I'm driving a lot. And it's like, why are you driving like a maniac? Like stop, calm down. It's going to be fine. You'll get there three minutes later than you thought you would. Like it just, uh, yeah, that's, it's interesting that you say that because I wouldn't describe myself as intentional or deliberate in any way. <laughs> well, hey, if you're not, you are playing a great game. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, you're doing a great job of it. <laughs> no, but I do think that's, that's really good advice. And, I, you know, I think we all could use to slow down a little bit. And I think that's something that also the, the pandemic taught us, too, because we were forced to slow down because we weren't allowed to go anywhere. And we all had mm-hmm. to kind of slow down and, and sit in it for a little for a while uh, which got a little uncomfortable and but I think we, we all kind of came out of it and you know everyone changed and pivoted a little bit and you know I, I'm definitely back to my like you know having to do you know a million things but you know as is life I guess <laughs> but slowing down I, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling it as well um, more coffee intake than previous <laughs> oh much more way more because it, it's so much easier like, I don't have to go buy it anymore. It's just right here. <laughs> I know. I press the button and it comes out. It's like, wow, this is dangerous. <laughs> um, well, and thank you so much for, for coming on and chatting, chatting with me today. I re- really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and of course, for everyone listening, if you, you know, like what you hear, of course, like and subscribe to the Defense of Arrest on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube at TBNR Podcast. Um, And thanks so much for coming on. Megan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.